Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Okay, well, welcome. (laughs) So if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22, we'll continue in our study of Abraham and the sacrifice. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. What would we do without the Word of God. Lord, how would we be guided and how would we be brought out of darkness and how would we know about you except from the words of your mouth? Lord, we hold this book in front of us this morning. We count it precious as from your mouth in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 22, uh, verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, which is, as it is said this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now, in our last study, you remember that we were impressed with the last statement there in verse 8 that we read where it says, they went both of them together. They were unified. That came right after Isaac's question where he said in verse 7, my father, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Those are the last words that we heard from Isaac in this passage here. The last words that Isaac speaks was a question of where is the lamb? And from that answer, Isaac understood from what Abraham told him that he was the lamb, that he was going to be the lamb. So from that point, we understood that Isaac was silent through the whole process of becoming the sacrifice. And we were impressed with that. We were impressed with Isaac's silence. And we saw how that was a pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was silent through his whole process of him becoming the sacrifice. We were impressed with the silence of the Lord Jesus. But we weren't the only ones who were impressed with the silence of the Lord Jesus' sacrifice. There's another person in Scripture who was impressed with this, and what happened was that this person became responsible 
for carrying the gospel to all of North Africa. And we read how Philip met this person, where it says in Acts 8.27, it says, And he arose, this is Philip, and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasures, had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. So here was this Ethiopian eunuch. He's got great authority. He's sitting down in his chariot. His chariot is moving along. And while he's sitting down and he's moving along his chariot, this Ethiopian is reading out loud to himself the book of Isaiah. That's pretty dramatic. And Philip, he's reading, he's not like really in a whisper, he's reading it out loud in such a way, he's so troubled by what he's reading, and he's reading it out loud that Philip hears him. And this Ethiopian, he was reading very loudly, and the passage that he was reading, we can imagine how he was reading it, as saying it out loud, the passage that he's reading, it mystified him. He was at a loss to understand what he was reading, and it, it puzzled him, it just baffled him. And so Philip could tell by the way he was reading this out loud that he was absolutely at a loss and could not figure out what he was reading about. He couldn't understand it. And so Philip then, because of this, he goes and he asks him if he understood what he was reading. And he said, how can I understand? It's like some person should guide me. So the real question is, what was he reading that he couldn't understand? What was he reading that so impressed him? It was obviously the book of Isaiah. It was Isaiah 53. So it's Isaiah 53. But what in Isaiah 53? That's the issue. What in Isaiah 53 could he not understand? What was it? What about the Lamb? That's right. That was the thing. And it says that in Acts 8.32. It says, the place of the Scripture. See, that's important because that's what he is baffled about. The place of the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep, Acts 8.32, as a sheep to his slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so openeth, opened he not his mouth. See, in his humiliation and his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And then it says in verse 34, see, this is what so impressed him, the silence of the Lord during his sacrifice. So the eunuch then answered in verse 34, Philip, and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then it says in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And by the way, that should be, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a tremendous challenge. Could you take this book and at any scripture in the Old Testament begin to preach Jesus? That's interesting, isn't it? The way it says that there. It says, he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. That's what impressed this Ethiopian eunuch. It was in Isaiah 53. The same thing that impressed us about Isaac in Genesis 22 was the silence. The silence during the sacrifice. And the question is, who's the silent person during his sacrifice? And so Philip answers. Now, 
In our last study also, we saw how Abraham's dearly beloved son, his dearly beloved son, Isaac, he looks into the eyes of Abraham and he asks this piercing question in verse 7 of, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And then Abraham, under the greatest pressure of his life, he tells Isaac in verse 8, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. When Abraham gave that answer, that God will provide, that was the answer that he gave. Essentially, he was a God will provide. That's the answer. God will provide. He not only gave the best answer to Isaac, but Abraham had given the best answer for man's greatest question or his greatest need in life. See, Abraham gave this best answer for our greatest question or our greatest need in life. Isaac, in essence, was saying, I need, I need to know. And in Isaac's case, it was a need for him to know where's the lamb for a burnt offering. And Abraham's answer, which was for Isaac's need, was that God will provide. In this specific case, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. But Abraham's best answer for Isaac is also our best answer for our greatest need. If I was to ask you, what area in life, or I don't know if I'm using that, what is the biggest need that man has? It's the need of what? What would you say? It's kind of a hard question. What's the greatest need that we have in life? Is it to win the lottery? (laughs) What? That's right, welfare. So, you know, it's this. The greatest need that anyone has is the need of the heart. It's the need of the heart, or the soul, as you mentioned, the need of the heart. And Abraham's answer that God will provide, it speaks to the different needs of the heart. Because there are different needs of the heart. For example, there is the need of the unbelieving heart. The unbelieving heart and the need there. Now, I'm going to read an account of an unbelieving person who came to the Lord with an unbelieving heart. And follow carefully, because at the end, I'm going to ask you, how did the Lord provide for this man with an unbelieving heart? So you know the passage in Mark 9, 17 through 27, it says, and it says, one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples, and that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, he fell on the ground, and he wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it has cast him into the fire, into the waters to destroy him. That's interesting, isn't it? Oftentimes, it casts them into the fire, the waters to destroy him. When anybody tells me, I hear voices. So many people hear voices. And when anybody tells me, I hear voices, I say, stop. I know exactly what those voices are saying to you. They're saying, kill yourself. Kill yourself. That's the mode here. Okay, oftentimes, it casts them into the fire, into the waters to destroy him. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus saith unto him, thou canst believe. All things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. A man with a need of an unbelieving heart. And when Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, 
come out of him, enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Okay, that's the passage. That's the account. Now the question. How did the Lord provide for, with, for, for this man with the unbelieving heart? How did he provide for the need of the unbelieving heart in this man? What would you say? Do we see in this passage, this man with the unbelieving heart, that the Lord said, you know, what's wrong with you? You should have believed. Now you go home and sit in the corner till you believe. <laughs> you know? Put on sackcloth and ashes and go around the city and cry out unbelief, unbelief. You know? That's not what he did. He was gentle. He was tender with them. And what he did is he did something that this man would never forget. Lots of drama. He says, number one, he waited till there were many witnesses. There were many witnesses when Jesus saw the people come running together. See, this is when he acts, when there's many witnesses. In a very dramatic, open way, the Lord openly rebukes this demon. He doesn't say silently to himself, now come out of the man. But very openly, it says in Mark 9.25, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, enter more into him. So imagine this. All the people are running to him. Big drama. He speaks out. He re- openly rebukes him. He tells him he's a dumb and a deaf spirit, and he gives him a loud command, come out of him, enter no more. And then, that's the second thing. Then the third thing, the Lord openly, in front of everybody, he takes this boy by the hand, he lifts him up. It says in Mark 9, 27, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. See what happened. See, the Lord wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Which means that he wants us to believe without having to see these signs and wonders and miracles. It reminds me of Pastor Jim one time we were driving together and Jim started to sing this song, Mighty Signs and Wonders in Jesus' Precious Name. I said, I don't remember singing that at the chapel. I said, where did you learn that song? He says, oh, a Pentecostal pastor taught me that. Anyway, so he wants us to walk not by having to always be, have a regular diet of mighty signs and wonders in Jesus' precious name. Anyway, but he said to Thomas in John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and yet have believed. But in the case of this father who had a need of an unbelieving heart, The Lord did provide for the need of the unbelieving heart by a very dramatic miracle, very dramatic, very open, which was what he did for Thomas also. It's very dramatic. Thomas had the need of the unbelieving heart also. It's great drama there in John 20, 27, when it says, Then saith he to Thomas, Reach thither, hither, thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. So the Lord said, okay, all right, so it's great big dramas, just like with the boy, and put your hand here. So the Lord in this way, he sees the weak heart, the unbelieving heart, and he provides help, strength, so that they'll move on. That's how he provides for the unbelieving heart. Then there's the need of the faithless heart, the faithless hearts. You know, the apostles sense that they just didn't have faith when they came to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they had a need of a faithless heart. And so in Luke 17, 5, it says, And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. Increase it. Make it more. Now, the Lord Jesus provided for their need of their faithless heart by telling them, the problem is you're too focused on your own importance. 
You're too focused on your own importance. And he says in Luke 17, 10, Likewise, when you shall have done all these things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We've done that which was our duty to do. So he provided instruction in self-abasement for the need of the faithless heart. Then there's the need of the sorrowful heart, the heart that's full of sorrow. He watches over us and he sees when sorrow just comes like an overwhelming wave on us. As he said in John 16, 6, sorrow hath filled your heart, overflowed, filled your heart. But for the sorrowful heart, he says in Jeremiah 31, 25, I have replenished every sorrowful soul. See, the Lord provides a replenishment, different ways. But what was lost and the need for the sorrowful soul. But thou art, Lord, in Proverbs, Psalm 3, 3, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head, precious statement. The lifter up of my head. See, the Lord provides his hand to lift up the head of the sorrowful heart. It says in Psalm 35, 30 verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. The Lord provides something joyful to meet the need of the sorrowful heart. And then the great passage in Revelation 7, 16 through 17, where it says, it speaks about the saints, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat, for the lamb which is in the midst of them shall feed them and shall lead them unto living water, fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So how does the Lord provide for the sorrowful heart? He provides his hand to feed the hungry. He provides his leading to lead to drink to the thirsty soul. He provides his hand to wipe away all the tears from the sorrowful heart. Then there's the need of the discouraged heart. Courage has been taken out of the heart, and there's no more courage. And so this, of course, we think of David at Ziklag when it says in 1 Samuel 35 through 6, David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam, Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly discouraged, it says, for all the people spake of stoning him. That would be pretty discouraging. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his first daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. Anybody remember the next two words? David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Those are the most important words. The Lord, his God. That's a tremendous statement when it says that David was able to encourage himself in the Lord, his God. See, that means that David could encourage himself because the Lord had provided for the need of the discouraged heart by making himself David's God. David did not have to provide for the discouraged heart by making him, let's put it this way, God did not have to make himself David's God, but he did that, and that provided encouragement or met the need of the discouraged heart. See, the Lord, when he provides for the need of the discouraged heart by making himself our God, he said so many times this phrase where it shows that he made himself our God. It says in Genesis 17, 8, I will be their God. It says in Exodus 29, 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. It says in Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. It says in Jeremiah 31, 33, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, 38. And they shall be my people, I will be their God. Ezekiel eleven twenty. 
It says there, they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Ezekiel 34, 24, it says, and the Lord will be their God. And Ezekiel 37, 23, it says that neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. God says it's going to stop. It's horrible that the U.S. government recently has given permission to the U.S. embassies around the world to fly the United States flag and a one more flag, the rainbow flag for homosexuality. And the cities that have chosen to do it, the first city that chose to do it, Tel Aviv, the embassy in Israel. And God says that neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, their decessible swings, nor with their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. In Ezekiel 37, 27, my tabernacle shall be with them, yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Zechariah 8, 8, I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. And then Paul said, what agreement in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? You're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So all of this, God saying, I will be their God, is for the encouragement. It's to meet the need of the discouraged heart by making himself our God and making us his people. And then it says in Psalm 48, 14, for this God is our God. Forever and ever, he will be our guide even unto death. And when God said the discouraged, he makes himself our God. This God is our God. That means that you and I can go outside. We can look at the magnificence of his creation in the skies and the birds and the oceans and the fish and the forests and the animals and be filled with awe and be filled with the wonder of his creation. And then we can lift up our hands to heaven and go, ah because we're so taken back, and say the words of Psalm 48, 14. This God is our God forever and ever. He'll be our guide even unto death. That means we can study the wonders of biology and genetics of the cell and lift up our hands and go, this is so amazing. And we can say, this God is our God, and he'll be our guide even unto death. He's our God, be our God even unto death. And you remember the story? During the communist times in Russia, when there was the professor came to the class of the 12-year-old kids, and took a Bible and said, now, I've read this Bible now, and I'm here to tell you that it's full of lies and myths and fairy tales, and it's not true. And then he's challenged the class, and he said, is there anybody in this class that still believes this book, the Bible, he's holding up the Bible, and a little 12-year-old girl stands up, and he comes up and says, come up here, he's gonna, and he rails on her and says, you know, you're stupid, you're a fool, and how can you believe this book is full of fairy tales? What do you have to say for yourself? And the little girl looks at him and says, that's what you get for reading someone else's mail. <laughs> this God is our God. <laughs> this book is a letter to us from our God. Now, there's also the need of the weak heart, the heart that is weak. And in Jeremiah 31, 25, he provides when he says, for I have satiated the weary soul. The Lord provides satisfaction and then for the need of the weak heart. Psalm 103, 11 through 14, 
as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. See, he says, for as far as the east is from the west. See, he didn't say from the north to the south, because if you go north, you'll eventually come to south. But if you go east, you'll never come to west. <laughs> anyway, as far as the east is from the west, he said, that's how far has he removed our transgressions. Like as the father pitieth his children... So the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our refrain, he remembereth that we are dust. He remembers that. See, how does he provide for the weak heart? He provides by giving great mercy, in great mercy. He provides his great mercy for the weak heart. He provides for great removal of sins, for the need of the weakened heart that's been weakened by sin. He provides tender pity as a father for the need of the weak heart, and he provides his memory. He remembers how weak we are and for the need of the weak heart. But I have prayed for thee, he says in Luke 22, 32. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, what did he say? Sorry? Strengthen thy brethren. See, he says, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. So the Lord provides other strengthening Christians for the need of the weak heart. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051.